Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Cracking Podcastville, you found the Bystander Podcast. Today on the podcast, I have an old school friend from Bainbridge Island, Francis Wapplinger. How you doing, Francis? I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? Really well. It's it's like half your lifetime since I've talked to you, and it's long yeah, just overdue. About, just about, yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, how many years did you live on Bainbridge Island? Oh, uh, I don't... No, exactly, but 15, 16 years maybe. So pretty much from third grade through high school. Mm. And then I'd come back, you know, when I was away going to college, I'd come back every summer. And you went to design school or something like that? Yeah, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design, Savannah, Georgia. Ah, where the voting just got fixed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a mess there, but I don't know. Anyone I talk to about Savannah, I tell them to visit Savannah because it's really awesome. And Beautiful. I think it's a little bit different than the kind of rest of the state. Definitely an eclectic mix um, in that city. Yeah, r- rural versus urban is is different everywhere. It's just like here in Washington State. You know, you get over the mountains, there's a different viewpoint. You know, they Definitely. don't want to pay taxes for the bridge to go to East Side when they're never going to drive over it their entire lifetime. So how was it growing up here? Well, let me take it back for the listeners. Francis uh, played soccer for me at Emerald City when um, you were a high school player. Then I left to Eastside and Team Seattle, and I believe you went to play for Tommy Jenkins at Crossfire? That's correct. Yep. Sounder legend. And um, what was it like living on Bainbridge at that time? Uh, I mean, I would imagine kind of similar to how it is now, but I would say kind of typical teenage years. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, thing with playing soccer though, I had to go into Seattle 
So it was a lot of commuting, which in hindsight now I think is kind of insane. But yeah. at the time I was trying to play the highest level soccer I could. And that's just kind of what you had to do. But I think also it was kind of nice to get off the island a little bit for me personally. You know, you meet people from other areas of the Seattle and the state. So, yeah. Yeah, it was incredible the commitment you showed to the team. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking I would never, ever do that for my kid. And now I'm doing that and more driving to yeah. Tacoma to get um, – good good training because yeah there was a, so much on the island there was a one year i was going to tacoma another year was federal way then it was mostly seattle uh kind of in between there yeah so it's, it's yeah i mean i guess you see it in some things like with the soccer i think you know bainbridge there are its limitations and certain things like that but overall i mean when i think of my childhood growing up there I mean, overall, it was, you know, fantastic. You, you, didn't, you never got bored or anything like that? What kind of things did you do for fun? Um, well, I played soccer, so that took up a decent amount of yeah, time. Yeah, took up a and lot of time. Teenage years, I skateboarded a lot and just hung out with friends, a little bit of video games here and there. Um, and then if I got too restless, I'd be going to Seattle. So I had some friends in Seattle. We'd kind of go in Seattle, go to some shows, tons of music venues. We'd always be going to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And just kind of popping around the city. Whereas I had some buddies that really just kind of stayed more on Bainbridge. But I had a group of friends on Bainbridge, and we always would go in maybe like Friday, Saturday, go to some music venues, stuff like that. Right on. You really had to manage your homework with the amount of commuting you did. Thankfully, you know, you're on, on the ferry when you're going to Seattle and you got a good 30 minutes to crack a book each way. Um, how did you ju- juggle athletics and academics? And then also second part of that question is, how do you feel about the education that you got on Bainbridge Island? Um, hmm. Well, uh, I guess my grades, they were never, I never felt like they were priority. If that, that might sound strange. Sounds familiar Um, to me. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I had a few classes I really enjoyed at school. Um, There's a few really good teachers. Um, So I think for me, yeah, there are some classes I just, I, I was found very difficult. Math, science, definitely not a strong point. Um, I took foods and international foods, I think combined like two or three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I did try to have the balance. Um, uh, and, you know, I would do my homework on the ferry. But I think with soccer, I was more, you know, dedicated, not dedicated to that, but I was just way more interested in soccer and trying to push myself in that regard. Um, where school, um, there's a few classes I really enjoyed that I, I did try pretty hard in. And then the other classes, it was more just trying to get the work done. Yeah, you know, as fast always, as you can. Yeah, I always did all the homework. I did all the work, but maybe sometimes, you know, I didn't put enough time in to really, you know, do, you know, get A's and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'd rather go out skateboarding. I'd rather see my friends or, you know, I had soccer too. Right. So sometimes I'd do as much as I could on the ferry, 
you know, and was due the next day. Well, you know, I wasn't going to stay up till like two or three in the morning. You know, I really wanted to get, you know, sleep. So I felt fresh. So why do you think you don't play anymore? Oh man. Well, I did a bunch of traveling. Um, then when I got back to the States, I was kind of living out in, uh, on the Eastern end of Long Island. I was kind of thinking about joining a league. Um, but I kind of just, I didn't really want to commit to something that's so organized. So I know you have to have a schedule and that kind of thing. So mm. right now I feel like, you know, I kind of fell into this passion of mine, which is shoemaking. And that's kind of the focus. So whenever I have free time, I pop out and now I've taken back up skateboarding. So that's what I've kind of done. <laughs> so with soccer, <laughs> yeah. So with soccer, I think, you know, I still love, I love the game, but, you know, being in an organized adult league, there is that fear of uh, being injured, you know, whereas someone that hasn't played in years, they just come in, they whack you and, you know, you're finished. Whereas with skateboarding, of course you can get hurt, but if I do get hurt, it's my own fault. It's mm. not, you know, someone just running me over. You can control um, then, it a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I can kind of push my comfort. You know, I'm not trying crazy big tricks. I'm, you know, sticking to pretty basic stuff. And then also with kind of, I like having my schedule now where it's, I'm, I'm flexible. Mm -hmm. You know, I can pop out, skate with some friends, you know, in my free time, but it's not so kind of, you know, the time's not as managed. And with what I'm doing with shoemaking, I mean, you know, some days like, oh, I got to go do this or I got to go that, you know, do this, send this thing in the mail or whatever. Yeah. I, I um, often tell people that you, you have to be in that space to be a creator and, and sometimes you're just not in that space. So forcing it isn't going to work. You can't just show up and create and the stuff that you do is so so intense and and beautiful and detailed you know yeah. you gotta really be in into the moment i, I wanna, think too I like i was go gonna ahead. add too i think the intensity i had in my youth for soccer and that structure in a sense i've i've kind of put that into my shoemaking whereas mm. the same focus physicality that mentality i think carries over a little bit so I kind of get that out of my system now with shoemaking, whereas with skateboarding, it's kind of my free time that's not scheduled, if that makes sense. So skateboarding and soccer, they have a very strong uh, footwear culture to them, don't they? Do you think that have leaked into definitely. you as well? Like, were you the one definitely. that always had to have the new kicks? I don't know if it was the newest kicks, but I always looked for something a little more obscure. Mm. that maybe not everybody had whether it was a different color or style or brand like jomo um, or uh yeah exactly yeah, exactly okay. or just like getting like a gray a gray cleat instead of black you know, i didn't want to be too flashy and get like the all white but gray it's subtle it, it's a dark color shoe but slightly different than an all black it cracks me up kids getting orange plastic shoes on the soccer field and i'm like you look like a cone you know yeah. that one we'd sit down and dribble around hey yeah tell, I mean, go ahead no i was just gonna say back in my day was still most of the shoes were still leather so yeah, I I'm, I'm out of the loop i'm yeah exactly i'm out of the loop with soccer cleats now 
Well, they're about five times as expensive, made out of crap, and last a quarter of the length of time. Oh, my God. (laughs) And they're not supportive of your feet. Um, And they're usually made by child labor. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that. Um, Before we get into uh, being a cobbler and such, I'd like to know where you've traveled. I know you were in Florence. Um, I've been to Italy and... uh, you know, it's just the most beautiful place in the world. And, um, well, New Zealand's right up there, too. I got to kind of throw that in there. Sure. You um, graduated from design school and then started on this path in Florence where you became an apprentice. Tell me how that all evolved and um, how much prior travel you had. Sure. So, um, graduated Savannah College of Art and Design 2010 one of the only dates I still remember. Um, yeah, so graduated there. It was kind of when the whole economy had still kind of bottomed out. Um, no one was really... So I studied interior design. That was my major. Um, and by the time I graduated, I just hated it. It was all on a computer. And I was just kind of miserable. Mm. Um, but the silver lining of the recession for myself was there was not really pressure to go into my field. There was no jobs, people that loved what they did in interior design that did, you know, got way better grades in school. They couldn't get jobs. And when I knew they couldn't get jobs, I figured I probably couldn't get a job, (laughs) you know? So it kind of, I think, you know, my family's always been supportive of what I want to do, but it kind of took pressure off everyone my age. It was, you know, you go work at a restaurant or uh, just odd jobs. So with no pressure to really go into my field, um, partly because the economy, um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my fiance, um, we decided to travel and we did what's called woofing, willing workers on organic farms. So we went over to Australia. And we were so there. like you, Ringo. We were <laughs> there so six granola. months. So three months we were in Sydney and we were working at uh, Sydney Harbor Marriott, big hotel downtown Sydney. And then the other three months we worked our way down to Melbourne working on a really small, not like, uh, you know, industrial agriculture, but small family farms. Um, And then we actually did a little mini trip to New Zealand, uh, just to Auckland area, um, like 10 days. Um, So we did kind of that six months and then while we were there we were like what are we going to do when we get back and this is awesome but we can't just travel forever and we actually got like an italian book like a little italian dictionary and we're like we should go to italy like i want to you know i think i want to do shoemaking and i'd done a little bit before this traveling um how how did you get exposed to the first so I guess shoe to backtrack making. real quick, um, we had a family friend who ran a shoe store in Seattle. Um, and she had heard of this place in Port Townsend, so an hour from Bainbridge, called Shoe School. And you can go and make a pair of shoes. So Just for while, like a, a, a night, a week? Uh, it was yeah. one week. It was one week. So you stay over in Port Townsend. And you stay at like a, this cool kind of castle hotel they put you up in. And there's a, I think it was like maybe eight, around eight, eight students. 
and it's this couple and they kind of live out in the woods in Port Townsend. It's called Shoe School. So while I was still in college, I did that for a week when I was home one summer. Wow. And it was, I just had a blast. It was amazing. Because I had always been into footwear. I never thought of making the shoes. I would always think of design or different colorways. Um, you know, I would airbrush, like an all black pair of sneakers. I'd airbrush them different colors. So I did that one summer before I graduated. And they kept saying, you know, if you have fun here, there's this guy on YouTube you got to check him out, blah, 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 blah. So it's this guy, Marcel Mirshan. So I had graduated. So that, that summer I graduated before I traveled, I did a one-week course in Brooklyn um, with him. And so that was kind of my experience. Then we went – so I had that in my mind, and then we did this uh, woofing and working in Australia. So I kind of had in my mind this kind of – these two shoe experiences – and I was like, man, like that is something I just had so much fun. So it was really only mm. two weeks, but like I was just something about it just just stuck in my mind. And um, so Megan, my my now fiance, but at the time she wanted to, she was thinking of doing classical drawing and painting. I was kind of thinking of doing shoes. You know, we're like, how are we going to do this? Where do we go? What do we do? So once we came back, um, she's from the eastern end of Long Island. So we came back out there and we we're just working at a bed and breakfast out there. And then just, we we're working, saving, figuring out what we want to do. And we ended up in Florence. Wow. And now do you guys share a studio? Because she's a classically trained yes. artist. And you... Okay. Yeah. So now we share a studio in Brooklyn. So we live in, we moved to Brooklyn a little over a year ago and we got a studio in Brooklyn um, last October. All right. So let's get into this shoemaking. Um, do they still call it a cobbler or is there some fancier title now? So for technically cobbler, it's repair. Mm. So you have, you have shoe repair and shoemaking. So you could call me, I guess, a shoemaker and then the traditional English word is a cord waner. Okay. And then cobble, cobbler or cobbling, that's technically um, repair work. So some of the work does overlap, but they are quite different in, in many ways, where some of the expertise, expertise and specialization is, uh, is a little bit different. Okay, you're in the Zoom gloom tube here with me, and it's an elevator, and you got three floors. What's your elevator pitch? What do you do, and why do I need to have a pair of your shoes? <laughs> Can't say I was ever good at elevator pitches, but it's a handmade product, and it's made specifically for your measurements. And you can choose all different kinds of leather, customization, and... You know, you're supporting a historic craft and an independent artisan. Beautiful. That's exactly how I'd describe it. Now, there is such a huge uh, sneaker culture with the airbrushing and removing of stitching. And, you know, you said handmade. Is there a lot of machine-made shoes? Yeah, I mean, anything that's ready to wear. Uh. I mean, so anything that you go into a store and it's sitting on the shelf, you try on a few different sizes and you buy it, it's made on a machine. 
Yeah, I love seeing hands, hands touch it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a person touching the shoe, but you know, there's all these different. Almost every process in making a shoe has been automated. Right, because it, it used to be the selling point. I used to love the Adidas Copa Mondales. Mm-hmm. They were yeah. doubles. They said they're double stitched kangaroo leather, hand sewn. So that hand sewn is kind of like when you're on a restaurant menu, and they say hand torn lettuce. I'm like, did you have to dif- differentiate between a machine torn lettuce or, <laughs> or what? What's the difference yeah. to me? It's just a salad. So... <laughs> but I think in shoes, <laughs> it's much different. I've seen some of your videos. I've seen your shop, which is this immaculate, and you're pinpointing little holes all through the leather. You're stretching different materials. Mm-hmm. You're creating the sole, the arch, the polish of it, the just the absolute look from scratch. Yeah. So one of the things that still is done by hand, if you will, it's it's stitching the uppers. So you have a sewing machine. You know, it's hand operated, and you do have to have a, a very skilled person that operates a sewing machine to stitch the uppers. Uh, and the upper is like uppers. if so if you had a soccer shoe you have the sole which has the cleats and then the whole leather part that is the uppers oh okay it's so not the sole the, the leather part yes exactly okay so that's the one thing that yes you're using machine but it's a sewing machine and the technology on those it's changed a bit but it's you know pretty much the same it's been for the last hundred years or so now, I mean, I, it's almost cathartic to watch you work. Like it's like a meditation music app in a lot of ways, because you're just taking small small nails, hammers, working. It's such a craft. How long does it take to make your average wingtip? So that can be you're talking around eighty hours to one hundred forty. Depending wow. on the complexity of the uppers, the construction. Um, with that said, you know, for a first pair of shoes, if someone orders a first pair of bespoke shoes, I do at least, you know, one fitting shoe, usually two. So I'm almost making three pairs of shoes. Um, one being the the dummy or the mold? or Yeah, so you would try on several pairs of fitting shoes. Hmm. before I actually make the final shoe to check the measurements, check the design, make sure it's comfortable on your foot. So yeah, bare, bare bones, you know, you're talking, you know, 80 hours for a pair of pretty simple construction, nothing too complicated. And that excludes, you know, the fitting shoes and stuff like that. And what kind of people are coming to you for these shoes? That's correct. Now, what what kind of people are coming to you to get these shoes? <laughs> um, all different kinds of people. Um, you know, kind of maybe more stereotypical, um, you know, finance guys. Um, maybe some lawyers, stuff like that, where, you know, you have to dress up every day and they get paid pretty well. So, you know, they want to be comfortable. They want something you know, customized for them and they're going to be wearing it every day. They have to wear a suit and tie. Um, and then you also get people that just really 
kind of are obsessed with shoes yeah. or they want to support an artisan or they have minor, you know, foot issues, you know, nothing that you'd have to see a doctor for. But, you know, one of the common ones is, you know, where their toes are and their forefoot, it's a bit wider and they have a really narrow heel. So they have problems finding a dress shoe that fits them properly where their foot's not mm-hmm. sliding around or the shoe's not way too tight. Um, and then you just have people that are obsessed with shoes. They love shoes and they've kind of fallen into, you know, collecting um, shoes, really kind of how everyone has a hobby. Mm-hmm. You know, their hobby is kind of learning about footwear, buying footwear. And then they also like to just dress up and have a certain style. Yeah, I'm frumpy sweats on Zoom, but uh, when I do dress up, I like to go straight to my Doc Martens and, oh, I should have brought these over for you and, and shown you. Um, they're two-tone, wingtips, big sole, a lot of stitching, a lot of, what do you call the little uh, peck holes? Let me broguing. Them. Say again? Broguing. Broguing. Yeah, yeah, a lot and of And then that. if you have little, little kind of teeth marks, like the little triangles, Above that, that's gimping. So mm. sometimes you'll have just broguing where it's the decorative punches, the de- decorative holes. And then sometimes they'll combine that with gimping, which are the little zigzag marks that kind and, of sit above that. And is that something like you, you knock a piece of steel stamp into the shoe or how yep. is that made? That's how it's So made. I have I have a number of punches and it's literally just punching it with a, a hammer. Um, they do have like a machine you can do that with. Um, but I don't use that right now. You like to add hours of labor? <laughs> yeah. Well, frankly, the machine, I, I looked into it, um, and it's it's quite expensive. So, Yeah. Seeing your shop, you have to stay really organized. Um, where do you source most, most of your stuff? And are you one of those guys that look around? I know there's a huge flea market culture in New York um, for vintage-type tools to make mm-hmm. shoes. So when I was in Florence, when I was in Florence, Italy, I would go to all the vintage markets, antique markets, and they would have, you know, some really old, cool tools. Um, I, I, I still use a hammer today. One of my, I have a few main hammers um, for different processes, but I still have one that I use every day from a market there. Um, cool. I think... Yeah, I haven't really been around New York um, to check out the markets. I was coming to the city, but, you know, not so often that I would kind of go. And now that I've been here, it's kind of been COVID uh, situation. So I would like to go to those markets, check them out. Um, but for shoemaking tools, probably not so much. Um, in, in Florence, Italy, you know, it's everything. Everything shoemaking is there. So there's old tools floating around. So, um, so where do you source your um, shoe materials from? Uh, it's all from Europe. So everything I order comes out of Europe. So mostly Italy. Um, so all the leather, Italy, Germany, France. Um, but my main distributors, there's one in the UK, uh, one in uh, Vienna, and then in Italy. Nice. Um, what's the material? It looks like on some shoes you've actually I'm I'm a big velour suede silk guy sure. old school and uh weekends were made for velour in my house 
I, I saw some type of material close to that on some shoes that you made. I was wondering what that was made out of. So it would be suede. I have some shoes I've done in suede. Um, yeah. And that that's suede's just cow suede or? Yep. Goat it's suede. bovine. It's cow. Okay. So it's just, yeah. And actually suede is quite durable. People kind of think, oh, it's not really durable. It's so soft. Um, the only issue you have is with a light color suede, it can stain pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you use like a darker color, it's actually quite durable. Puma suede's. Those were some of my favorites. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, my parents grew up li- listening to Elvis, so they were jamming the blue suede shoes. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. When I got, shoes. got enough money, I impressed my parents and bought some. I nice. think first first blue pair was the the Gazelles by Adidas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've gone back into sneakers since I started skateboarding again lately. So I've kind of been, you know, got my eye on that a little bit. And then I've I met a few guys who are um into sneakers. So, you know, they're they're kind of doing the deconstruction, reconstruction. Yeah, that's really recon, big. Recon. So I've chatted with those guys a little bit, but it's still quite another uh, world from what I do. Yeah, and that's even though it's shoemaking, kind of the corny um, printing on the shoes. You know, you get a white canvas shoe and they put it through a three D printer or something. And oh yeah, yeah. Get your girlfriend's yeah. face mean, on their shoe or whatever you want. Yeah, um, I mean, some of the stuff I like, and you know, a lot of it's personal preference. Yeah, but, I think all of it. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. in price and supply too. So yeah. What, what was the question I was just about to ask? Um, shoot. So have you heard of this? I don't know what the site is, but a lot of rappers and hip kids go on the site. It's kind of like an eBay auction for shoes. And then rich people seem to outbid each other. And it's very, very competitive. And I, wonder, I was wondering if there's something like that in the dress shoe market. Uh, not that I'm aware of, but I'm kind of a Luddite, I guess. Um, Good word. Like I have, you know, I use Instagram, but if I didn't have a business, I probably wouldn't have Instagram. You know, I'm still, you know, I did my own website. You kind of have to, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're just starting off, you know, if I'd been around for 50 years and that, you know. So is most of your business word of mouth? Yeah. Word of mouth. Some people find me on Instagram, other people, it's word of mouth. Um, you know, I work with a tailor over here in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So I have most of my shoes on display in his store. And mm-hmm. he's been around 20 plus years. Um, so kind of working with him, I have a, a private workshop. You know, anyone's welcome to come visit, but it's not a storefront. And then Instagram, word of mouth. Um, I've had a few... Um, write-ups online a few articles written about me online and in print so just a little bit you know here and there and people kind of trickle in do you do any um work with fashion shows or trunk shows or anything like that i've done a few trunk shows i've done a few trunk shows in seattle actually and to um, find was, a trunk show for me basically trunk show so the one for example in seattle i partnered uh, with a tailor john decaro and you know, I chatted with him on the phone when I was in Seattle, you know, I met him, showed him some samples and he was like, Hey, like, I totally get what you're doing. You know, if you want to, you know, host a trunk show in my shop, like you can 
have a Saturday and that's your Saturday. So basically I came to his shop. I set up all my samples I have. So sample shoes, all my sample leather swatches. And then anyone that want to come in, talk to me. If they want to order, I'll measure their feet, take their order there. So that's pretty, I mean, that's a pretty basic trunk show, but that's what it is. How many um, shoes do you think you've sold over your career? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Do you have a I, favorite? Do you make your own shoes for yourself? Oh, yeah. I only wear my own shoes. So unless I'm going skateboarding. Such boss. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, it's, I have a favorite, I have favorite shoes I've made for myself. Um, I have some shoes I've made for clients that maybe I enjoy making more. You know, mm-hmm. certain style, like, for example, I'm not, I don't really like loafers that much. No. You know, not because I don't like how they look. I don't like to wear them. I like a lace-up. I like to, my, I like my shoes really tight, snug. I lace them as tight as I can. You know, my foot's, like, vacuum-packed in there. Um, so, for me, that kind of shoe, an Oxford, that's my favorite style, personally. So, it's kind of my favorite to make. Mm. Um, so, those are kind of my favorite. Whereas I'll happily make a loafer for a client, you know, but it's not, it's not my personal favorite style. Where do you see the business going in the post COVID future? Well, I'm slowly just trying to build out my client base. I mean, I haven't been around that long. Mm. A lot of guys doing what I'm doing. Really? You know, they're talking the guy apprentice with Italy. He's been around 25 years. Um, and then you have big name, you know, people like John Lobb out of UK and they've been there over a hundred years, their store. Mm. So I'm trying to, you know, expand my client base, expand my name and also just keep, you know, I want to keep this craft alive. I want to get people interested in handmade footwear I want to get people excited about it and also, you know, educate people about uh, handmade footwear. And I, I think it's important um, and I don't want it to be lost to history. And I also enjoy, you know, that's the only thing I really want to be doing. Well, I think with your background, you could have a bed and breakfast week long shoe school that um, people could go for a, a tourist attraction slash DIY craft making thing that you could get a pretty pretty penny for and do that once or twice a year. Yeah, a, I mean, yeah. down the road, that's that would definitely be something that would be really cool. Um, right now, I, I do offer classes, but it's uh, it's just one on one, and mm. usually it's uh, one week, so it's five to six days, um, or I do a two week course and that's two weeks each week five to six days and since it's one-on-one i do i can tailor it to uh, each individual student Um, but most people that do those they do come to me with a little bit of experience Mm -hmm. since it's one-on-one like oh i've done this a little bit but you know i really want to hone in on this part or learn this construction Um, so i do some teaching Um, i'd love to do more of that as well So it's all about finding kind of the balance between the teaching and then also making uh, for clients. Making money, right? And having time for yourself to skateboard. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the the challenge is 
that's what's really been the challenge. You know, when I first started, I was so focused on the making, you know, now it's about, okay, how can I actually make this a business, you know, sustainable business that can, you know, sustain my livelihood, you know, and cause with me, it's not, there's no business plan to, you know, get huge and make tons of money and then sell it or, you know, yeah, you know, there's not, I'm not trying to grow this thing until it's enormous. You know, at some point I would love to have one or two employees slash apprentices, but mm-hmm. I'm not trying to just get as big as possible, which it's kind of weird maybe. Cause I feel like no, I've always liked that about you. you. You're simple and, and content and happy, but yet full of discovery and, and life and, you know, it just, it, it radiates pretty cool. Yeah, and like with the shoes, just like with the soccer, you know, I'm always trying to push myself. I always want to get better. And every maker, every shoemaker I've known that has been successful, they're always, they're not just stuck in their ways. Like, oh, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. They're always pushing in the envelope personally for themselves because that's how, you know, they keep people excited about their business. Well, tell people where they can see some of your work and um, how to connect with you. So uh, my website, www.francis... Nobody, stop. Nobody says www anymore. Okay. FrancisWapplinger.com. There you go. So Francis with an I. Wapplinger is W-A-P-L-I-N-G-E-R. So FrancisWapplinger.com and then Francis Wapplinger on Instagram. Do you have any um, shows or anything coming up or any events or anything exciting? No. I mean, no no events. Um, you know, COVID, it's kind of been a roller coaster a bit. Um, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know for everybody mm-hmm. um, it's it's been crazy. So we'll have to see. I mean, I would love to do more podcasts, you know, doing something – like we're doing here. I mean, that's fantastic. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really looking to kind of get published more, you know, get some more, you know, hate the word advertising, but just kind of get people know about me that are interested in this Mm -hmm. uh, topic. But right now I'm just kind of, I'm just in the workshop working. I don't really have any events at the moment um, coming up. Well, Podcastville, go out there and, like I always say, support creators. You can support this show on Patreon. Please support Francis and look at his his um, great work and support the artisanal crafts that are dying off in this tech-heavy world that we're in right now. Um, Francis, um, please say hi to your family. Um, I've yet to meet Megan, so she's, she's a lucky lady. I know that. Um, tell Ashley... I said, hello. Um, your little sister gets married before you do. What's up? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Put a ring on that, man. <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. And if I'm ever um, in Long Island, because um, I go out to Syracuse every once in a while, maybe we can connect. And if you come this way, please give me the heads up. And I look forward to hosting you out here. All right. I definitely will be in touch. I mean, I can't wait to get out to Seattle been a while so i will let you know next time in town all right i'm gonna kick the ball around with you and you're gonna put me on a skateboard sounds good we'll all do right. it. take care you too appreciate you thank you listen to the bystander be kind
Thanks, Francis. You rock. Thank you. Watching wait to kick the dough in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching wait to kick the dough in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, You come to my hood and tell me how to live I think I'm good, that's not what it is Not how it works, so I was at work On my craft like I'm leaving the earth Like trees in the earth getting deep in the dirt Not for Reason I search, that's for the birds, like the season of turps. You see, yeah. at first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, you're the only reason I hurt. At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, the only reason I hurt. Maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it. But I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it. So now I can't have your big lips. Just wanna love you for real, though. But when you come to work, you wear your still toes. So you can't feel no access to your seal. So and so, I gotta pay the bill, though. And get fed, barely have the meal slow. Girl, yeah, love is all I'm really here for. Wake up in the morning, yawning. Cops watching, wake to kick the dope. In, Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching wait to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, See, me, I always been a thinker See so you telling me we gon' sink uh, Don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot I'm careful of my aim and I'll be shooting to you Care for the same, on the same dream like some pairs I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same Already there is the plane, cop you a ticket Have you a visit to where this is First, you're the only thing I need on this earth then. But you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth then. But you're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rain Yeah, 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 yeah.